Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 10 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one, please, from the pew rack right in front of you. Open up to Hebrews chapter 10 so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week, in our travel through Hebrews, we spent more time looking at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. We considered what was accomplished through His death. And we rejoiced at the once-for-allness of this sacrifice he has made for us. We also tried to soberly reflect on the impact that his death can have on us who are surely going to die. Those of us who have an appointment with death. We don't often like to think about our own mortality, uh, but we would be fools to try to ignore the fact that we are going to die. So when we got to application last week, I said basically this, you are going to die. And after you die... You will be judged. And on your own, at that judgment, you are doomed for sure. And that Jesus Christ is your only hope in that day of judgment. And we talked about how that is not just true for the people in this room. It's true for every man and woman and boy and girl on the planet. Your neighbor, your friend, your daughter, billions across the planet who've never even heard they're going to die. And after they die, they will be judged. And on their own, they are absolutely doomed. And Jesus Christ is their only hope. And so many of them have never even heard about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So many of them have never heard the truth about Jesus. So we must go and tell them, right? On their own, they're doomed. Christ is their only hope. If they haven't heard, we must tell them. It's our job, it's our calling, it's our privilege. This week, we're going to enter into Hebrews chapter 10. It's a big deal because chapter 10 really is the high point in the author's talk about Jesus as our great high priest. He's going to bring, the author is, all of these themes, these theological themes together into a big theological crescendo. You remember we've been talking about Hebrews like a symphony where it's not so much a linear argument as it is the bringing together of different themes and sometimes one is louder and another is quieter and sometimes that changes and there's this flow. Well, everything is going to be coming forward a little more. Everything that he said up to this point is going to get a little louder and a little louder and there's going to be this big theological crescendo at the end of chapter 10 and then we're going to shift gears pretty dramatically into a new movement of the symphony, a new part, a new sound. Same song, uh, just a new sound is going to come forward in chapter 11. So I guess I say all that to say that the next few weeks should be really good. Uh, the next few weeks in Hebrews chapter 10 should be really good. And so I hope that you'll be here and I hope that you'll invite some friends to come and be a part of the gospel uh, truth that we're going to share together in Hebrews chapter 10. Today... Uh, it's a little bit more technical than what's going to come after this in chapter 10. You might not be super thrilled at today, but there are some amazing things for us to see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. So that's where we're at today, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. This is what God's Word says. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But 
In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray together. God, we are uh, supremely thankful today for the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. To fully, finally take away our sins. Not just cover them. Not just cleanse our flesh, but to take away our sins. And God, we pray today that you'll open our eyes to see the glory of that great sacrifice. And that great forgiveness. That we will appreciate it. That we will savor it. That we will delight in it and enjoy it. And that we will leave this place ready to proclaim it to the world around us so that they might experience this forgiveness, this redemption, this salvation that is given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the best way, I believe, to approach this text today is to break it into two parts. In verses 1 to 4, we'll look at the inadequacy of the Old Covenant and then in verses 5 through 10, we'll see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So the inadequacy of the old covenant and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at it in verse 1. In verse 1 he says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. What you're seeing here is a bit of a variation on a familiar theme. The author of Hebrews has repeatedly told us that the Old Covenant tabernacle, that, that structure, that tent that was the place of worship, was only the shadow of a greater heavenly reality. Now he's going to lump the whole law, the entire Old Covenant system, in together and say essentially the same thing. So basically what he's saying is that all of it, all the laws, all the festivals, all the priests, all the sacrifices, all the tents, all the altars, all of it. All of it was only a shadow. Christ and his sacrifice and the new covenant, that's the substance. That's the real deal. That's the greater heavenly reality. And it's important as we think about that to remember the context into which this letter, this sermon is written. It's being written to a group of people who have left Judaism in order to follow Jesus. But when they started following Jesus, life got really difficult for them. 
they experienced some oppression. They experienced some resistance. They were ostracized from the community, and they were persecuted. None of them have died at this point, but that's really just around the corner historically, and they know that that's coming. So life got hard, and because life got hard when they started following Jesus, they were tempted to stop following Jesus, to turn away from Jesus and to go back to the old familiar life of Judaism. In other words, they were tempted to leave the reality and go back to the shadow. And the author of Hebrews is trying in this whole letter to communicate to these people that that would be a disaster, that that would be absolutely disastrous for them to leave Jesus and go back to the tabernacle, to leave Jesus, our great high priest, and go back to the blood of bulls and goats. He says it would be disastrous, and he he makes that point by saying also it would be ridiculous. It would be a ridiculous thing to leave the substance for the shadow. And maybe I can illustrate this with, with a, a story from my own life and, and Laura's life. When we first started dating, uh, we were separated by some space uh, and some time. She was away at school and I was still here. And so we, we bought this little diary book. Journal, we should call it a journal, right? Not a diary. Um, and we agreed that, that when we got to see each other for maybe a, a weekend or, or whatever time we got to see each other, we would exchange this book. And while we had it, we would write in it. So, so if, if I had the book, I would spend the two weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever, and I would write pretty regularly uh, in the book, oh, sweet, sappy things this book contains. <laughs> it is embarrassing at this point, right? Uh, and, and, and so I'd spend that time because I didn't have her. I didn't, we didn't have FaceTime and Skype and all those things. We had phones. We're not that old. Um, <laughs> But we, we didn't get to see each other, and we wanted to, wanted to share our hearts with each other and, and get to know each other better and better. And so we wrote in this book. And then when we got to see each other, we would hand off the book, and it would be this great exchange. And when you got the book, you know, when she had had the book for a couple weeks and she gave it to me, I, I, I couldn't wait to get into it. But, but I didn't want to spend my time while I was with her reading what she had written in the book, right? That, that was only for the time while we were separated. And so this book, is, it's, it's meaningful to us, right? It's valuable to us. In fact, I used this book uh, to propose to Laura. Uh, so we had exchanged this book back and forth, back and forth for a couple years, right? And uh, so uh, I had it, and I wrote, man, I wrote great things in it. We were, I was good at this at one point in my life, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so when it, when it came time to ask her to marry me, I, I wrote in the book, and then I I cut out with my pocket knife the last bunch of pages and stuck the ring in there and closed up the book and gave it to her. Uh, it was good. That, that part is good. The rest of our proposal story, not so good. Um, it happened, I happened to give her the book about by a dumpster, and that's where she found the ring, and so that's where it happened, right by a dumpster. Was, that, that wasn't good. <laughs> that part wasn't good. But I say all that to say this. There was a point of, in time in our lives where that book was extremely valuable and we cherished that book and we loved that book and it was almost everything to us. But now we don't need that book anymore, right? We don't need to share our hearts on the pages of that book because we've got each other. In fact, it would be insulting of me to be sitting on the couch with Laura or sitting at the dinner table with her having this moment where it could be the two of us face to face and I just ignore her and I read in the book. And she tries to talk to me. I say, shh, I don't, want, I don't have time to talk to you. I'm reading the book. Wouldn't, you'd be upset about that, right? You would say, put the book away. You've got me here in the flesh, right? 
And that's the way it is with this stuff too. The author of Hebrews is trying to say, why? Why would you want to read that book when you've got me here? Why would you want to go back to that old system of bulls and goats and priests and temples and festivals when you've got Jesus with you here? He's died for your sins. He is better. You catch, you catch the point of all this? He's saying not only is it disastrous for you to want to go back, to leave Jesus and go back to the old ways, it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous for you to want to leave Jesus and go back to the old ways. And so he's been saying this. For 10 chapters, not nine chapters, he's been saying this. And now he's, he's really getting fired up about it because he's about to bring this to some conclusion. And he's going to get, you're going to see some escalation in these first four verses. You're going to see some real escalation. He's going to get more aggressive. He's going to get more succinct and, and to the point. Watch, watch what happens uh, when, he, when he says, The law could never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect, make perfect those who draw near. So this is quite a bold statement he makes, that the old covenant with all of its sacrifices could never make perfect those who draw near. Now we've got to remember that the word perfect in a biblical sense does not mean without flaw. It doesn't mean without blemish. Rather it means complete, full, lacking in nothing, Adequate is a word that would translate well there. Or having arrived at the intended goal. So in other words, he says that the old covenant and its sacrifices could never bring people into a truly, permanently right relationship with God. It couldn't bring the people into true, permanent, right relationship with God. He lays it out there with a bold statement and says that. And notice that he makes his argument for that truth based on the perpetual sacrifices of the Old Covenant. He basically says that those never-ending sacrifices are the display of the inadequacy of the Old, Old Testament. He sets it up in verse 1, and he really brings it out in verse 2. Look at what it says in verse 2. Otherwise... Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. If the old covenant sacrifices had been able, had been able to make the worshiper perfect in a truly permanent sense, if they were able to bring people into a right relationship with God, then they would have ceased, right? If those sacrifices would have been effective, if they would have done the job, they wouldn't have had to be offered over and over again. In other words, if they had worked, they wouldn't have needed to be repeated over and over and over again. Then, if they had worked, sin would have been dealt with. It would have been done away with. But the fact that those sacrifices were offered over and over and over show that they're only shadows. Shadows that pointed to something greater. Shadows that caused us to anticipate something much better that would really deal with sin. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, he really picks it up a notch when he says, But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Rather than cleansing the conscience, rather than making people perfect, rather than taking away sins... Those perpetual sacrifices only reminded the people year after year after year of their sin and their guilt before God. That's what those sacrifices did. Every time they slit the throat of a bull or a goat, it reminded them of their sin. It didn't take it away, 
It maybe covered it for a certain period of time. It maybe cleansed them on the outside, but it didn't take their sins away. Now, to be clear, the old covenant did some good things. Those sacrifices did some good things. They taught the people about uh, the sinfulness of their hearts. It's one of the things that happens in the old covenant. People learn about their sinfulness. It teaches the people about God's hatred of sin, that the cost of sin is high. It teaches people that sin leads to death. It teaches people that atonement is necessary. It teaches people that God delights in those whose hearts are clean, whose hearts are clean and obedient and faithful. But as much good as those old covenant sacrifices did, they didn't take away sins. They didn't take away the sins. In fact, the author says they only reminded the people of their sins. And then look at verse 4. Verse 4 is kind of the final blow when he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's the clearest, most aggressive statement he has made up to this point when he looks the people square in the eye and he says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is, a, that is a clear, definitive statement. And it makes perfect sense, right? Why would we ever think that the blood of a bull or the blood of a goat could take away the sins of a man? Bulls and goats didn't do anything. Bulls and goats don't consciously go to the altar and sacrifice themselves on our behalf. They don't have a clue what's going on. Why would we think, why would we think that the blood of bulls and goats could take away our sin? It can't, and the author of Hebrews says it clearly right there. Tom Schreiner sums this part uh, of the text up in this statement when he says, The law points forward to something better, to genuine forgiveness of sins. But the law itself doesn't truly forgive sins, and this is evident since the sacrifices are repeated continually. The sacrifices are repeated continually to show us that they don't really take away sins. But all of that is to point us to something better, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because for all the inadequacies of the old covenant system, Jesus is sufficient. For all of the weaknesses of the old covenant system, Jesus is strong. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's the blood of the Son of God. It's not sacrifice that is offered over and over and over again. It's a sacrifice that's offered once for all. It's not a sacrifice that merely covers our sins or cleanses us on the outside, but a sacrifice that takes away our sins and cleanses not only our outside, but our inside. For all the inadequacies of the old covenant system, Jesus is enough. Jesus is better. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is greater. Jesus is sufficient. And the old covenant is not. Jesus offers himself once for all, and the mission is accomplished. We don't have to turn around and do it over again tomorrow. The sacrifice of Jesus and the cleansing that he provides is not like a shower, where you have to do it again later. One time, he cleanses us forever and ever. And this is good news. This is really good news. So we see in verses 1 to 4 the inadequacies of the old covenant system. Then in verses 5 to 10, we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, that should be a capital H, right? A faithful translation would have a capital H there because it's a reference to Jesus. This is, therefore, when he comes into the world. And we need to see that the author here in this passage is going to use an Old Testament quotation of Psalm 40 to show that even back in the days of the Old Covenant, 
even back in the days when they were slaughtering bulls and goats and the priest was sprinkling that blood everywhere. Even back in those days, God was teaching that there is more, more than just checking items off a list, more than just sacrifices and offerings. It has never, ever, ever been about the blood of animals. It has never, ever, ever been about going to the tabernacle and checking something off your to-do list. It has always been about faith and trust. It has, always been, it has always been about the Messiah who would come and give his life on our behalf. Raymond Brown says that the author of Hebrews puts the eloquent words of Psalm 40 into the mouth of Jesus at his incarnation. So, so the author of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 40, and as he's interpreting Psalm 40, he says, this is what Jesus says. Listen to these words as if they're coming out of the mouth of Jesus in his incarnation. You know what the incarnation is, right? It's when Jesus came uh, to earth, took on flesh, lived among us, right? Made his dwelling among us, suffered like we suffer, tempted like we were tempted, right? All of this experience that we have, that's about the incarnation. And so imagine Jesus saying these things at the incarnation. So look, what, look in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says. And that therefore connects this whole idea to the last paragraph. He's just taught us that the blood of animals will not accomplish God's ultimate end, his ultimate purpose. Jesus, therefore, doesn't come to offer an animal. Jesus is not a high priest of a different order who comes in with a better bull. Jesus isn't a high priest of a different order who comes in with a better goat. He doesn't come in and find some other animal to sacrifice. That's not the way Jesus is going to operate. The author has told us the blood of animals cannot take away sin. So when Jesus comes, he's not going to offer the blood of animals. He's going to offer himself willingly. And that's the idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us here. Jesus is going to offer himself as the ultimate, satisfactory, effective, once-for-all sacrifice. And Jesus is going to be a willing, knowing, obedient sacrifice for our sins. It's not the way it was with those animals. Those animals didn't have a clue what they were doing, did they? Do you, do you think that goat grew up his whole life thinking, all right, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the one to give my blood for the forgiveness of their sins. No, what'd that goat think? Hmm, there's some grass. I'll eat it. That's all that goat thinks about, right? He doesn't understand what's going on. And when they took him to the temple, he didn't think, all right, here it is. The day has arrived. The hour has come. I will be the sacrifice for sins. Is that what happened? No, he didn't even have the sense. The goat didn't even have the sense to say, oh, boy, this is going to be painful. The goat doesn't have a Gethsemane moment, right? But when Jesus goes to the sacrificial altar, he goes with his eyes wide open. In fact, he came for that purpose. The whole time he walked the earth, he knew that's where it was headed. He knew he had come to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And when he went to the cross, he went there knowing. He went there purposeful. He went there obedient, eyes wide open all the way to the cross. And this separates Jesus from those goats in a million ways. So, this is what the first part of this quotation is all about, that Jesus will be the knowing, willing, obedient sacrifice for our sins. Now, I'll tell you this, there's a bit of an argument about Greek and Hebrew when it comes to verse 5, when it says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, but a body you have prepared for me. In the Hebrew 
original of that psalm, it says, you have dug out my ears. That's what it says literally, you have dug out my ears. But the author of Hebrews, when he quotes an Old Testament passage, he doesn't quote the Hebrew Old Testament passage. He always, almost always, quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew. This may get super technical, but I'm telling you this, if you've got a friend who's a skeptic, if you've got a friend who says, you can't trust that Bible, your friend will go to this text and say, what, what, the New Testament authors just, just change the verses any way they want? In New Testament, the, the author of Hebrews, he just changes it to you've given me a body. It doesn't say anything about a body. It says you dug out my ears. The original says you dug out my ears. How can the author of Hebrews just change it to you've given me a body? So I'm telling you this to, to give you some equipment to deal with your skeptical friend. The author of Hebrews is quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew original. And those translators said that in order to understand what's going on when it says he dug out my ear, there are two elements to that. One is about creation in general. When it says you dug out my ear, the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry in particular would often use one little part as a reference to the whole part. So basically they're saying we understand Hebrew works this way. When in poetry one little part of a body is talked about, it stands for the whole body. All right? so, so he's talking about the creation of his body here, that Jesus was given a body Right? Not just an ear, but the ear representing the whole part of his body. So we're talking here about incarnation. That's one thing that's going out on in the digging out of the ear. The other part that's going on is what's the ear used for? What do we use our ears for? Not, nothing, evidently. <laughs> right? <laughs> evidently we use our ears for not much of anything in this moment. What do we use our ears for? We use them to hear, right? And what's the purpose of hearing? Biblically, what's the purpose of hearing? Just enjoyment. Knowledge? No. Obedience, right? Why do we have ears? So that we can hear. And why do we hear? So that we can obey. And so we've got two things going on in the Hebrew original in an idiomatic way that there is a reference to the incarnation that Jesus was given a body, a physical body, so that he could die a physical death as the substitute for our sins. And he's given these ears through which he can listen and be obedient to the Father's will. So we've got incarnation and obedience. And to have the perfect sacrifice for our sins, what do you need? You need incarnation and obedience. So the author of Hebrews is not doing something absurd here with the text. He's not manipulating it in just any way he wants. He's interpreting it for us so that we can understand it a little better. That's what's going on in verse 5. So you can argue with your skeptical friend. Or you can see this bigger point that Jesus was given a body... He was given a body so that he could die a physical death for us. It's not the Father. It's not the Father who died for us. He's spirit. He doesn't have a body. It's the Son who dies for us. It's the Son who died for us because he took on a physical body. The incarnation is absolutely important. And he's also obedient. He's an obedient sacrifice. Not a dumb sacrifice, but an obedient sacrifice. And that seems to be what God has been looking for all along. Even in the Old Testament sacrificial system, he wasn't just interested in an animal dying. He was interested in a people who would be obedient, right? Because there are times, and I'm going to give you a laundry list of them in just a second. There are times in the Old Testament where the people were offering the right sacrifices. Over and over and over. They, when it was bull day, they brought a bull. When it was goat day, they brought a goat. When it was time for a pigeon, they brought a pigeon. They were doing all the right things, but God says, I hate it. It stinks. Why would he say that if they were doing the things he had outlined? Because their hearts weren't in it. 
They were just checking things off a list. They weren't being truly obedient. They weren't, they weren't exercising faithful obedience to him. Here are several examples of that. First Samuel, I mean, yeah, First Samuel 15, 22 says, I'm going to read them off of here. How about that? Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You catch that? Even in the context of the old covenant system, he wanted, he wanted obedience and not just sacrifices. What's the next one, Doug? For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it, and you are not pleased with burnt offering. This is Psalm 51. Uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51 is what David wrote after he murdered Bathsheba's husband because he slept with her and got her pregnant. You remember that whole scene? And David, in the midst of that guilt and shame from that sin, says, you don't want sacrifice. It's not sacrifice that you desire. It's obedience. Brokenness that you desire. Look at uh, Isaiah 1. says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats or lambs. Right? Why? Because your hearts are far from me. He says, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. Next. Hero earth. Behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my word, and as for my law, they have rejected it also. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba? Frankincense is another type of sacrifice. It's not an animal sacrifice, not a blood sacrifice, but an incense, fragrance offering to the Lord, and sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. This is incredible, right? They're doing it. They're offering the sacrifices, but God says, I don't like it. I don't like it. Why? Because it's never been just about the sacrifice. It's always been about the faithfulness of obedience in the one who offers the sacrifice. And the last one, this is the greatest summary. If you didn't get the rest of them, get this one. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what I want you to see here is that Jesus is the epitome of both sacrifice and obedience. Jesus is the superior sacrifice because he's not a bull, he's not a goat, he's the very son of God. He took on a body to die a death in our place because sin requires death, right? He died to pay the punishment for us, but he's also the perfect example of obedience. Because why does he die? Because he's obedient to the Father, and that's what the Father sent him to do. So if it's always been not just about sacrifice but obedience, Jesus is the epitome of both sacrifice and obedience. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about these questions from the catechism we're using to train our children. How long ago did Christ die? About 2,000 years. How were sinners saved before Christ came? They were saved by believing in the Messiah to come. Well, how did they show their faith? They showed their faith by offering sacrifices to God. And what did those sacrifices represent? They represent Christ, the Lamb of God who would come to die for sinners. Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the author of Hebrews, he uses Psalm 40 to make all these points about the sacrifice of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus. And then in verse 9, part B, on through the end of 10, he brings it home for a landing. Look what it says in 9B. It says, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The old covenant was always paving the way, pointing to 
the greater work of Jesus Christ. And because that's true, it is dangerous, futile, ridiculous to leave Jesus and go back to the old covenant. To leave the new and go back to the old doesn't make any sense at all. and will only lead to destruction. And that's what these people are tempted with. And then he says, we'll talk more about this next week. He says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The new thing that is better is the offering of Jesus' body, his sacrifice once for all. And by his sacrifice, sins are taken away. Not just covered, not just appeased, not just cleansed outwardly, but really taken away. So here are the two applications today. Number one, the problem of sin, which is our problem. You remember that three weeks ago? Three weeks ago, the application was, what's your problem? What's your problem? You got a money problem? That's not your problem. You got a health problem? That's not your problem. What's your problem? Your problem is sin. You sin. I sin. We are sinful. And we deserve the judgment and wrath of God because of our sin. And the only way sin is dealt with is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The only way our problem of sin is really dealt with is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not the sacrifice of animals. Not by works of the law. Not by some sincere adherence to religion. But only through Jesus Christ. Only through trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. And this is applicable for all of us today. Because we and our neighbors and our friends are constantly trying to deal with the problem of sin in some other way. We're constantly trying to get rid of the problem of sin by numbing our conscience, by self-discipline, by substance abuse, by relationship or materialism. We are constantly trying to deal with the problem of sin in some other way than simply trusting in Jesus. And your neighbor is trying to deal with it in some other way than trusting in Jesus. And so I want to call all of us today to look to Jesus as the only solution to the problem of sin in our lives. Look to Jesus in his substitutionary death. Look to Jesus in his victorious resurrection as the only way the problem of sin can be dealt with. Blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The blood of Jesus takes it away. Only the blood of Jesus takes it away. So let's look to Jesus and let's invite our friends to look to Jesus. You've got friends, I know you do. You've got friends who are trying to deal with the problem of sin in a bunch of other ways. And you need to go to them and say, this is not going to fix your problem. This may numb it for a little while and you may be able to avoid it a little while. But listen, one day you're going to die. And after you die, there will be judgment. And the only solution to this problem of sin is Jesus Christ. So I want to tell you about him. And I want to make this offer of free, full, final forgiveness through Jesus Christ to you today. Repent of your sins and trust in him and be forgiven. Be reconciled to God. Come to him, trust in him, and be saved. That's application number one. The problem of sin is only dealt with in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Application number two is that this cleansing, this taking away of our sin, this perfection, this sanctification is not something we deserve. It's not something we have earned. It has been given to us based on the work of Jesus alone. You don't come to this place of 
having your sins taken away, being declared righteous, sanctified, holy, saint. You don't come to that place because you deserve it. You come to that place because it's been given to you. And it's based on the work of Jesus. And because that is true, listen to me carefully. Because that is true, our entire lives should be lived in grateful response to the gift. Right? It, it, it would be like, it would be like, I'll tell you a story. This relates a little bit. Yesterday, I threw batting practice to some little boys, like 400 pitches probably. And there was one little boy that kept taking, taking them. I, I, I threw probably 40 pitches to this kid. He swung maybe 10 times. And it made me so angry. It made me so angry because here I am sweating, pouring down sweat. I'm tired. My arm hurts. And this kid is going to stand up there and take pitches. I said, I'm doing the work here, boy. You're getting all the benefit and fun, and you're not even taking advantage of it. You're not appreciating what I'm giving you here. It's making me angry. And I thought, this is just like me with the Lord sometimes. He says, look at all that I've given you. And you're going to do that with it? You're going to waste it? I did the work. You're not doing anything. You're getting all the fun. And you're going to treat it like that? You're just going to watch pitch after pitch go by? I don't want to live my life like that. I want to live my life recognizing that Jesus did all the work for me. He did all the work, all the hard work, all the heavy lifting, all the suffering. Jesus did it all. And he gives me all the benefits of his work. I do none of the work. He does all the work. He gives me all the benefits. How should I live? In total gratitude, obedience, respect, reverence, deference, even service. I'm going to make the most of the gift he's given me. And I want you to make the most of the gift he's given you. And not many of us are doing that right now. Most of us are abusing the gift he's given us. Sometimes even worse than doing nothing with it. Sometimes we take this grace that he's given us, this cleansing and forgiveness that he's given us, and we abuse it to the point where we say, he's so good, he'll just keep giving me more grace, so I'll just keep sinning all the more. I've got like the get out of jail free card, so I'll just do whatever I want, and he'll keep giving me grace. I'm telling you, that's worse than doing nothing with the gift. That's looking him in the face, thumbing your nose at him and saying, I don't care about the gift you've given me. If you've received the gift, live like it. That's what I'm trying to say. If you've received the gift of salvation, live your life in response to it. Be thankful, be grateful, and make the most of what he's given to you because you don't deserve any, any little bit of it. Amen. Let's stand together and pray. God, we recognize as we stand before you that we are sinful people and you are holy God. And the only way to deal with the problem of sin is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was all your idea. It was all your work. It was all your doing. We recognize that no other way solves this problem. Not animal sacrifices, not good works, not sincere religious duty. Only the work of Christ deals with the problem of sin. And we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to die in our place. To take our sin and suffer the punishment that we deserve. We're so thankful that Jesus died and rose again in victory over sin and death and hell. And we're so thankful that you offer us the gift of salvation freely. 
that the cleansing, the perfection, the holiness, it's not something we deserve. It's something you give. And so we want to live our lives in response, proper, grateful response to the gift that you give. We want to make the most of it. We want to honor you with the gift that you've given. So we pray that you teach us what that looks like. Teach us what it looks like to live in response to the grace we've been shown. And God, we, we ask that you would show that grace to more in this room, in this town, across the globe, that you would reach down and give the gift of salvation to people like us who don't deserve it one bit people like us who only deserve your wrath, we pray that you'll reach down and show them grace, show them mercy and love in the cross. I pray that men and women and boys and girls will respond to the good news by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ for salvation, and that you'll receive glory as you raise people from the dead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.